The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. This is going to be week 2 of our Advent celebration. Uh, we talked last week about the meaning of the word Advent, and if you weren't here, uh, or if you were, we'll just refresh on that just a bit as you're opening your Bibles. Uh, the word Advent, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, and that means coming. And so in Advent, we have a dual celebration uh, where we remember the fact that our King has come, but we are remem- in our remembering that He came, it also stirs in us the anxious expectation that He is coming again. And so Advent turns our attention backwards to the fact that he came, uh, which is a beautiful truth, but it also stirs in us the anxious expectation that he is indeed coming again. Uh, He was faithful to his first promise, and he'll be faithful to the last. As we open up here, you're going to see that this begins in verse 1. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And uh, I just want you to know, we're going to read all of chapter 1, and uh, I want us to think about this question, are these long lists of names, right? We're looking at the first 17 verses being essentially a list of names. Are those important? I think sometimes it's tempting to think, you know, maybe this was just filler or they thought maybe the book wasn't long enough. Let me add something at the front. Uh, But that can't be true because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. And because that's true, we know that this genealogy, also there's one in Luke 3, there's others found throughout the scriptures, uh, that it's not just filler, that God saw fit for these to be included in his word. So we aren't just going to skip it, we're going to read it together, as painful as it might be for you to hear me work through some of these Hebrew names with my very English tongue, hallelujah, look forward to that. Uh, you'll know when I'm not sure, I'll just be, I'll go faster and so, and sound, try to sound confident, so it'll be good. Uh, but we're not going to skip it. We're going we're gonna to read this together, and then we're going to talk about why it does matter. If God saw fit to put it in his word, then uh, it's important. And so we're going to read it together, all right? Let's do that. We'll start with verses uh, 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab and Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of 
Abihad, Abihad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok. You notice that after the deportation to Babylon, the names get real sci-fi. You notice that? It's like <laughs> Azor, the father of Zadok, right? It sounds like the alien race that's going to attack at any moment. Um, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. We see here that this genealogy, it differs from the one in Luke 3 in a few ways. Uh, One of the most striking is that Matthew's genealogy traces the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham, whereas Luke's goes all the way back to Adam. Okay, so why do we see that? Why the difference? Well, first of all, the target audience of the two books was different. And secondly, the the perspective of the men writing the books was different. I'm very thankful that God in his wisdom did this, right? Matthew, a Hebrew tax collector, he writes with a high emphasis towards convincing his Hebrew brothers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah they were waiting for. So who is it important for Matthew to tie Jesus to for the Hebrews? Abraham, right? Luke, the only guy that was not a Hebrew that was a part of writing the New Testament, he's a doctor. He's, con- he's concerned with connecting everybody, and, and, in, and he's concerned, if you notice in his gospel, much more about the humanity of Christ than the deity of Christ. And so he writes uh, his genealogy tying all the way back to Adam so that everybody understands they are connected to Jesus through the lineage all the way down from our first parents. And so uh, I'm also thankful for the varied perspective of a tax collector versus a doctor. You get a tax collector that looks at a situation, he's going to notice what? How many people are there, right? How many anything was there, right? <laughs> he's a tax collector, right? He's going to be a number guy. Luke, the doctor, is going to notice more. How's everybody feeling that's there? What's the, what's the mood of the crowd? What's, what are some of the specific things that are being said? And so God in his infinite wisdom gave us these uh, varied gospel accounts, and oftentimes people will look at some of the differences that come out of the perspectives of men that are intentionally different and, and try to point that out as some kind of conflict. It's not. It's just God in his wisdom giving us those varied perspectives so we would get um, a more full view of some of the things that are listed in all of the gospels. And so uh, I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have that wider window into those events. Um, so Matthew is writing to the sons of Israel, thus he points to Abraham. Um, and why does he do that? Matthew wanted us all to understand that the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, that's right when um, God asks Abraham to take Isaac up the hill. He does that in obedience. The very last moment, God says, hold on, uh, I'll provide a sacrifice. You know, the ram's caught in the thicket. And God says, because you have done this, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And uh, that promise in Genesis 22 uh, is that all the nations of the world would be, would be blessed through Abraham's seed, through Isaac's seed. And Matthew's making this connection. He's building a case that what you witnessed in Christ's coming is the fulfilling of that promise from thousands of years ago. That in Genesis 22, when God spoke to Abraham and said, 
All of the nations are going to be blessed through your seed. That you follow that genealogy down all the way from Abraham, what you end up is at Jesus. And because of that, that, that he is the fulfillment of that promise from so long ago. So he wants to make sure we understand those connections. I'm glad he did. Matthew really wanted to make it clear that Jesus was not just a prophet or a worker of miracles or a teacher, but he was the one who had been foretold and he was the one who had been promised and he was the one that they had all been waiting for. Jesus was the king, he was the Messiah, he was the savior of the world. Matthew wanted there to be no mistake because there were many that would try to trivialize and minimize who it was that Jesus claimed to be. And who indeed he was. He's a Messiah. He's the promised one. He's not just another teacher among many. Matthew wants to make sure there's no mistake about that. You'll also notice a lot of emphasis in Matthew's account uh, here of the birth of Christ on how Joseph experienced the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Now even though Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, focusing on his perspective uh, of the events, it, it makes sense because of the patriarchal structure of the culture who was his audience. Um, you know, Joseph's not the baby daddy here. However, in a society that has a high emphasis upon um, the, the male headship of the family, Matthew's going to write from the perspective of how did Joseph experience all this with angels and, you know, now my fiance's pregnant and she's a virgin and she's going to bear God's son. Like, what was this like for Joseph, right? Matthew focuses a lot more on that, whereas we'll see next week Luke uh, keys in more on Mary's perspective. So again, I'm glad for that variance. Uh, there, are, there are some other controversies um, surrounding differences in the two genealogies. Maybe you're aware of those, maybe you're not. Um, I, I would encourage you that if you're curious about that, check that out later. We could really take way more time than would probably be helpful. The explanations can become lengthy and, and a bit confusing. But the point of both these genealogies, the grand overarching principle that we need to pull out, is that Jesus is the foretold Messiah. Uh, and that those genealogies, they help us to connect to him, to see the history of our people all the way back to Abraham and then back to uh, Adam. So thankful for that. Uh, let's read verses uh, 18 and 19 together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. First of all, I just want to point out here, um, in those two verses, I think we can learn that Joseph must have really loved his girl. You see what I'm talking about in those two verses? I mean... He had to have been a guy of really high caliber and, and really of decent character. Um, because if I'm being honest, I don't know that my first reaction to my virgin fiance coming to me and saying, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's God's, would have been being so worried about how that, her reputation was going to be covered. But this is clearly one of the first things Joseph cares about. Um, whether or not at this point he's even totally sure of what's going on, uh, he cares about her. He loves her. And uh, you ladies that are single and you're wondering what a godly man looks like, here's a beginning. We're going to see more of how Joseph deals with the situation, but here is the beginning of a great example. I would just point out a couple things to you as well, maybe things that are missing uh, as we go through this entire account. There's no mention of Joseph's rank on Call of Duty, so I would uh, 
just suggest that maybe that's not that important when it comes to assessing a man, uh, whether he's husband material. Um, it's interesting also that um, the breed of donkey that he rides is not, is not listed. Um, and so I think that what we can draw from this um, is that apparently character and integrity and obedience were of greater concern to Father God when he selected who would raise his son uh, than money, class, or social status. That's a good spot to amen. You missed it. Amen. amen. You see what God cared about there. I think it's very interesting that Jesus was born to a blue-collar, lower-middle-class family. The king of glory tells us something. Now, this is not to say, and I don't want you to misunderstand, this is not to say that these things, and when I say these things, I mean the character and the integrity. It's not to say that those things could not be found in a richer person or family. They absolutely could. I'm just saying that God clearly shows by the amount of character they had and not the amount of coin. There may have been somebody else that had more money that did have those things, but God chose apparently the highest um, detail to God, the thing that mattered to him most, couldn't have been that somebody was well off financially, but that they had the kind of character that would allow them to obey him through something that would be very difficult, if we're being honest. I think Joseph, I think Joseph was a solid brother. Let's read, uh, let's read a few more verses here. But when he had considered this, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Look at the obedience of Joseph in verse 24. It says he awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He didn't pout and complain about how unfair it was going to be to raise a kid that wasn't his. Not to mention the added pressure of that kid being the God-man Jesus. He didn't talk back, didn't question God. He says he got up. The angel of the Lord spoke to him. There's no hesitation. Got up and obeyed the Lord. I think we can learn something from that. This, this, would, this was an interruption to the plan. Do you see that? I think sometimes we hear this story so much like, oh, yeah, it's nativity. Woo! Do you understand? These people, were, they were ready to get married right? They're picking out decorations, and all of a sudden, uh-oh, the bride's pregnant, and it's God's, and he's asking that we just don't worry about that, and, uh, and, and move forward and trust him and raise this child that's going to be the savior of the world. Minor interruption to, to the plan, and um, something we should really, I'm, I'm not asking you to put yourself in the shoes of pregnant Virgin Mary. I'm just saying, has there ever been a time that your plan got messed up? How'd you do? Or do you not even think in terms like that? Do you think that since you have a plan, God will just go along with that always? Do you understand this was not what they had planned? Sometimes God will come and mess up what you got going on. But it's going to be for your good or it's going to be for the good of others. And in all of that, we say, yes, hallelujah, amen. 
We get up and obey. Glory to God. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if any of you have ever noticed or been curious about the seeming contrast of verses 23 and 25. We'll just deal with that quickly. It says, uh, behold, behold, the virgin sh- uh, shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. Uh, and then we see in verse 25 that he names him Jesus. It's like, well, hold on a second. Did somebody miss the memo? Is there confusion there? Does that not really line up? Um, I'll just read this to you. I didn't write it, but it's something I found that I, I think kind of squares that. Uh, there are many names given to Jesus using the phrase, he shall be called. Uh, and that's both in the Old and New Testaments. This was a common way of saying that people would refer to him in these various ways. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah that his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. None of these titles was Jesus' actual name, but these were descriptions people would use to refer to him forever. Luke tells us that Jesus shall be called the Son of the Highest and the Son of God and the Prophet of the Highest. But none of these was his actual name. And so that Emmanuel being God with us is yet another descriptive uh, name given to Jesus. And there's, there's so many more even that were listed here. Uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? People didn't walk up to him and say, hello, Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus. Yet he was the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the Morning Star. He's the Cornerstone, right? Amen. Okay, so... Uh, We have examined together here Matthew's account telling us that Jesus came, Uh, but the next natural question after we ask, did he come, I think yes is the answer to that clearly, is why did he come? I think a thinking person would would come up with that question. Yes, he came, but why did he come? I'm going to give you three reasons. There are potentially dozens, if not hundreds more, many of which might be outside the realm of our comprehension probably are, Um, but we're going to look at three, okay? So here's the three. Uh, He came to give, he came to rescue, and he came to bring unity, okay? Uh, The first two reasons we could draw from many places, but both of them can be succinctly drawn uh, from one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible, and that's John 3.16. If you were raised in any type of uh, church environment, you probably... You know, memorize this young. This is the first Bible verse anybody ever told me existed. And uh, I was happy to hear it then, and I'm still happy to hear it now. So I'll just read that to you if you don't know it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. To the Christian, that's that's a sweet verse right there. Some beautiful promise. Uh, Jesus came as an authentic and undeniable expression of the giving heart of our Father God. No one is more generous than Him. And no one has ever given such a lavish and precious gift as He gave in sending His beloved Son. There are many reasons uh, that people traditionally give gifts to celebrate Christmas. But there's only one good reason. And that's, it should be a reflection and a remembrance of God's extravagant generosity in giving the first and the best Christmas gift ever. Now, some folks have totally withdrawn from celebrating Christmas because of how stained and how polluted it has become by rampant consumerism. Uh, 
Uh, and I'll be the first to agree that the emphasis on buying and giving out of a sense of obligation is a disgusting departure from the picture of love motivated and selfless generosity displayed by Jesus' first coming. So some have totally abandoned celebrating Christmas at all, giving gifts at all, because they are vibrantly aware of how far many have gotten from its original intent. If we're going to give presents, the motive should be a remembrance and a reflecting of God's generosity to us. And if that's not mixed into that, if it's some of these other reasons, don't worry, I'm not letting you off the hook, we'll talk about them, we'll get the hammer out. Um, I know you like that, so I wouldn't want to skip it. Um, it's really tragic when that happens. So, um, there are also those that who refuse to celebrate Christmas because they do not believe that December 25th is an accurate date for the actual uh, birth of Jesus, and they feel that this makes the celebration illegitimate. Um, I just want to say, first of all, that I respect anybody's decision that they and their family will not participate in widespread Christmas traditions because of either of these convictions or any others. However, I would caution those of you who may hold those positions uh, to give the same room for folks to be led by conscience as you would hope for, right? So if you've come to a position that you want nothing to do with a traditional celebration of Christmas, as this culture does, um, you would hope that somebody would be gracious with you and not harsh and judgmental because you've come to that conclusion, right? What I find, though, more often is that the adverse is true. Those that have come to those conclusions figure the rest of us are useless, you know, slobbering pagans and we just don't care. Uh, I want to show you why that's not true. And if you've encountered somebody that takes that position, you know, I'm going to give you some ammo to try to lovingly talk to them. If you're in that position, stop it. Okay? Because it's sinful. All right. Um, I believe we as Christians have to apply the grid that we do to many things, uh, which is receive, reject, redeem, to how we celebrate Christmas in comparison to the unbelieving culture around us. So I'll just, I'm not going to go extensively into the receive, reject, redeem grid, but you'll understand it some just as I walk through this specific example. Um, so should we just receive it? Should we fully embrace a departure from any emphasis on the birth of our Lord and Savior and instead focus on worshiping our own compulsion to buy things and give them to people because that is what's expected? Should we just full-on receive the cultural um, kind of twisting of the original meaning of Christmas? Should it just be full-on taken in with no filter? I think you know the answer to that. Should we completely reject it? Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Should we reject it? Should we refuse to participate in any way in one of the best missional opportunities we have all year to talk with people about Jesus and instead ride around all of December on a high horse looking down upon anyone so stupid as to participate in all this pagan revelry? Should that be our position? I would say that I don't think either of those are the most helpful or most fruitful. Uh, I think the third would be can we redeem it? Do we just straight receive it as it is? I don't think we can. It's been tainted. It's been stained. I don't think we should just straight out reject it because I think there's still value to it. Can we redeem it? I think we can with God's help. So instead of pouting in the corner, here's how we redeem it. Instead of pouting in the corner because we think the actual date of Jesus' birth was maybe a few months later, we can realize that everyone in the culture around us uh, will have ideas and opinions 
and traditions surrounding Christmas, and that we can use these as a strategic starting point for gospel conversations. Do you see that? Do you see how the Christmas season, how Advent season, gives us a beautiful bridge to talk about Jesus that we don't have the rest of the year? Do you understand, have you experienced the fact that it's sometimes awkward to try to get the conversation from, hey, what's in your lunchbox, to, hey, uh, Jesus is the king of everything, and you're a sinner, and you should repent and surrender to him, right? Sometimes it's hard to get from the carrot sticks and the ham sandwich and the lunchbox, everyday mediocre subjects, so-called, to talking about the beauty of the gospel. Is the fact that everybody right now at some level is aware of baby Jesus in the manger, does that somehow maybe a little bit give us maybe an easier in? Yes. And so I think the straight out rejection of the, the cultural observance of Christmas is an incredible oversight and, and, and we would miss the missional potential that we have in observing this holiday along with the rest of the culture. But we do have to make sure that we don't just take all of it, including the sinful tendencies and the ways that Satan has twisted what could be something that turns our affections as we are trying to, through these Advent celebrations, towards Jesus and what he's done and what he's going to do, and towards, you know, big screen TVs and, and packs of socks, right? That's, that's, the, that's the deal. Satan always wants to take something that could be and should be good and make it useless. So, um, but we can, we can start strategic gospel conversations around Christmas traditions. Uh, we can also redeem the putrid hijacking of the tradition of giving gifts by refocusing our hearts, teaching our children, and talking with our friends about why we give. Just the discussion of the fact that the giving of gifts should be a reflection of God's incredible generosity and that he gave first, what better way could you ask for to talk to somebody about the beauty of the gift of Jesus. I mean, that is an easy segue into a gospel conversation. And, and I hope that you care about it. I hope that you, as you're sitting there thinking, are like, yeah, you know what? Man, with God's help, talking with people that are already talking about Christmas, about Christmas in a way that is strategic for gospel ministry, like, like that's exciting. Because maybe, maybe you haven't seen that before. Maybe, maybe it just slipped your mind, but we should have as much or more missional impact in December than we should the rest of the year. Beautiful. Easter's also one of those times. I know there's a lot of people, you know, packing eggs full of jelly beans. I get that. But so what do we do? Do we, do we run and hide in a cave um, to get away from the satanic jelly bean eggs? <laughs> no. We open it up and eat jelly beans, and while we are, we say, hey, these are good jelly beans. You know what else is good? The real reason for Easter. Let me tell you about that. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. The stone got rolled away. The tomb is empty today. Right? Man, these are good jelly beans. Amen. <laughs> me and Natalie talked about one time, like, what it would take, like, fly over to China and find someone to, like, make us, you know, I don't know, plastic injection mold, but make little like stones that rolled away that open up with a hinge. You can put jelly beans in instead of eggs, right? We'll take orders after service. <clears throat> uh, that was total derailment. Okay, so uh, Jesus came to give the most precious, costly, and important gift ever. That was himself, right? And so as we give gifts, as we are generous this season, I hope as you give uh, towards... the 
Cecilia's song so that they can be a blessing and give gifts to others. That as you do that, it's not because I did a good job twisting your arm. I tried not to do that. I want you to open up your wallet and give every opportunity that you have, to be generous every opportunity you have, not because you have some guilt that compels you to do that, or some expectation that compels you to do that, but because your heart is so full of gratitude for the generosity of your God that it is a great joy for you to crack open that wallet, let the dust blow away and the moths fly, and pull something out and give it. Right? Amen. Amen. I'm so glad you're excited about that, because I, I, I was, so glory. Amen. I know. It's convicting. We'll keep going. Okay, so the second thing, Jesus came to give, Jesus came to rescue. Okay, so the question is who? Who did he come to rescue? Uh, we know that God's love for the whole world was his motivation for sending Jesus to save us, right? John 3.16 told us that. Uh, but we also know that tragically the whole world will not be saved. And so what is the winnowing fork? What is the, the filter there? What's the division? Those who will be rescued are those who believe. That's what John 3.16 tells us. So whosoever shall believe shall not perish, but they'll have eternal life. Okay, so next logical question, what must they believe, right? Because some would tell you you can just believe anything you want earnestly. As long as you believe it wholeheartedly, you're okay. That's not true. You have to believe the truth. To believe a lie with all of your heart, you still end up with a lie. You got to believe the truth. That was exciting, wasn't it? Yeah, we like that in today's culture. What? Truth? How do you dare? Okay, let's keep going before I really lose a gasket. Okay, um, so what must they believe? The gospel or the good news about Jesus? Bottom line, right? That's what they need to believe. So that, of, co of course, includes his incarnation. Uh, we, we are celebrating one element of that total gospel story that leads to our salvation, that total gospel story that we receive the grace of God um, to, to believe by faith. And so that gospel that we must believe, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, and we've talked about elements of it, um, which it's kind of hard not to as we talk about his coming, but... Uh, the good news of the gospel, in order to make sense, needs to be preceded by the bad news. The bad news is that though God created us perfect, he created us for relationship with him, uh, that we rebelled and sinned against him. We decided that we knew better. We decided that knowing good and evil like he did was better than trusting him. And so we sinned. And because of that, uh, from that point on, the earth, mankind, uh, and, and pretty much everything was cursed. And so... Uh, from that point on, we are all sinners by nature and choice. The, the, the sin of man is passed down through the seed of man, and uh, every single one of us is born into sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. The bad news is a collective, pretty much everybody, not pretty much, absolutely everybody is in the same boat. Every single one of us is imperfect. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. None of us is without sin. And so what do we end up with? A bunch of dead people. Every single one of us. And so dead people can't raise themselves. Dead people can't fix it. Dead people can't build a bridge back to God. Dead people are in serious trouble. That's why they need a Savior. 
That's where Advent comes in. That's what Christmas is about. That's what baby Jesus in the manger is. It's not just, oh, look, it's baby Jesus in the manger. No, man. That's the savior of the whole world. That's the answer to the problem. That's the solution to dead sinners. That baby in the manger. And so he comes, and then he lives the perfect life that none of us could have. And dies the death that every single one of us should have in our place for our sins. God counts that as justice. His, his sacrifice in our place, his precious blood pays the price. It ransoms us away from that oppressor and that liar, Satan. We are freed from the chains of sin. And we are made alive again to be with him. We are reconciled to the God who loves us and made us. And Jesus didn't stay dead. Death couldn't hold him. And he rose three days later. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, awaiting that day when God the Father looks over and says, it's time, son. Go finish it all. Go get him. I'm waiting for that day, too. Amen. So Jesus came to give. He also came to rescue. He rescues us through giving us faith by his Holy Spirit drawing us by his loving kindness to believe the good news of his gospel. The third thing Jesus came to do was bring unity. And I think that this point is especially pertinent in light of recent tragic events in our country. I don't want you to misunderstand or think that I am about to make definitive comments on individual issues. I'm going to talk to you in broad principle. Uh, but those who have lost their lives recently at the hands of those who have sworn to protect them, they are not primarily victims of a broken justice system. They are victims of a lack of unity. Unity is the result of humility. And when these things are not present, you have hate and divisions. And racism is one manifestation of these evils. Just one. There are many, but it is one for sure. So the question is, how did Jesus and his gospel answer these issues? And I would say that, I would just plead with you that you would come and let us reason together because some of you might be offended that a somewhat privileged looking white guy is even talking about this. And I just, if you just please open your heart to and just believe for a minute that the Holy Spirit can speak to this. Just forget it's me for now, if you would. Um, because of the end goal. I'm not asking you to give me a pass or any credit, but I'm asking you to trust Jesus for a moment and hear him out. Okay? I heard a story that Tim Keller told one time that um, I think really speaks to how the gospel addresses these issues. Um, he, he was speaking to a, a Bosnian man, and um, if you know anything about Bosnia, it's had a very, very violent history for a very long time, and uh, he was speaking to this Bosnian in New York, and um, this guy was telling him that he was kind of ridiculing Americans a little bit, because he was saying, like, at election time, that... Americans lose their minds, that Republicans hate Democrats, Democrats hate Republicans, they both decide the other one is evil incarnate, there's like no middle ground, it gets really polarized and politicized, you guys, 
know that's true. Well, a lot of you are under 30, and so you actually don't know that's true because <laughs> you're totally unengaged in politics. Not that I blame you. But anyways, let's not go over there. Um, so he's talking to this guy in this Bosnian, and he's saying, you know, you guys just lose your minds, man, over this stuff. And um, the, the point he was getting to is he's saying, you know, when I, if I see another Bosnian here in New York, he, the, the guy was a Democrat, the, the guy that Tim Keller was talking to. He said, you know, I'm, I'm a strong Democrat. I lean that way. But if I meet another Bosnian who's a strong Republican, that has absolutely no bearing on our relationship. And it's in no way a barrier to us being able to enjoy each other's company uh, and, and be friends. Uh, and Tim Keller said, really, that's interesting. Why? Because those types of subjects, can, you ever been in the heated conversation with somebody that disagrees with you about politics? I mean, that can be a source of division. Um, and, and so he asked me, he said, so why is that? And the guy said, well, because if, if that guy, if that Bosnian is here, then I know that he has survived the same life and death experiences that I have in order to be here. Because it wasn't that long ago that there was genocide happening in Bosnia. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their life. If, this, if these guys both are, didn't die there and they're old enough to have been a part of it, then they both went through this shared experience where there was life and death involved. It was serious. And the point to that is when you go through a life and death experience with somebody, you see it sometimes in movies where people start out in the beginning, they don't really like each other, but they go through some experience that is incredibly impacting, and by the end of it, they're, they're inseparably close, right? We see this in the military all the time where men and women that go and they fight and they battle together, and, and they're in situations where they're very close to potentially dying. When they make it through that, there's a bond between soldiers that oftentimes is closer than bonds between family. Um, and so we see that that, that shared experience of, of, of something of life and death nature, that it, it bonds people together in a way that nothing else does. When people have the same life and death experience, there is a bond that supersedes all differences. In Romans 6.23, it tells us plainly that the wages of sin is death. And earlier in Romans 6, it tells us that through baptism, we are joined with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. This is how the gospel destroys racism and hate and divisions. Every one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have the shared experience of being made alive by the glorious grace and power of the gospel. Do you see how the gospel answers and crushes and breaks the neck of hate and division and racism. It can't stand. That's why I can go meet somebody downtown. Oftentimes I do when we're out uh, doing outreach and ministry. Um, I can go meet someone downtown who's a different race than me, who grew up in a different city or even a different country than me. Uh, they might be a different gender than me, they, and they can have completely different interests than I do. But let us find out that we both belong to Jesus. And we can talk and laugh and, and celebrate his goodness with no reservation. 
There is a bond there automatically because we have the shared experience of going from death to life, of sharing in the crucifixion of Christ our Lord, of carrying that cross, of being laid down in baptism in the likeness of his death and being brought up again in the likeness of his resurrection. We have the shared experience of being freed from the chains of sin. And that shared experience makes all those other things that could divide us mean nothing. That's why unity will win. But it requires something of us. Every single one of us was enslaved to sin, totally unable to free ourselves. Every single one of us. We are unified in the bad news as much as we are the good news. Are we not? Every one of us was enslaved to our sins. No way to free ourselves. But King Jesus did what was necessary. He fought and won the fight we never could have to let us experience the joy and freedom we never should have. I'm thankful for that. I should not have got to taste righteousness. I should not have got to taste freedom and joy and peace. I should have only had the bitter taste of darkness and sin forever. But Jesus saw fit to say that will not happen. I love him. I'm coming to give. I'm going to give what's necessary, and it's myself that he can be rescued. Glory. And I find it hard to be generous. Are you kidding me? Man, I ought to give everything away with a big smile on my face because he gave more than I ever could. Glory to God. When we center our lives on the reality of this shared experience of being transformed by the gospel, the divisions of race and class and age... They are ground into dust, and we are left with the unity that Jesus prayed we would have in John 17. It's the same kind of unity that he and the Father experience. Let me read that again. It's important. Without understanding this principle right here, the rest of it won't make a lot of sense. And the key here is this is what's required of us, that all that, that unity be uh, trumpeted and, and unity take a a place of prominence and racism and hate divisions be destroyed. It takes this. When we center our lives on the reality of this shared experience of gospel transformation, the divisions of race and class and age are ground into dust. And we are left with the unity that Jesus prayed we would have in John 17. You guys know that prayer? It's called a high priestly prayer. Longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus, right before he's about to be betrayed. So on his mind, right before he's about to be betrayed and go deal with the crucifixion, of all the things he could be praying about, you know what he's thinking about? Unity. He's asking God that we, his people, would have unity, the same type that he and the Father have. You think there's room for racism in between the relationship of God the Father, God the Son? completely, totally unified, because they're completely, totally humble. They're completely, totally enveloped and in love with each other. It's the goal, dear ones. It's the same kind of unity that Jesus and the Father experience. May we be a people of character and integrity and obedience like Joseph. May we be a people who give generously not out of sinful compulsion, but out of a response to our Father being the first and best giver. May we be a people reconciled by the shared experience 
of rising from death to life through Christ. May we not just experience, but be a source of unity and healing in our world that is broken and hurting. And may God be glorified in all these things. May God be glorified as we are transformed more and more into his image. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord God, we thank you that we can look back and remember with affection your incarnation, the fact that you came to rescue us. You came to give yourself. You came to bring the potential for unity we never would have found without you. It is only by your power, by your strength, by your example that we could have any hope of these things. If it were not for that, we would only be so focused on our own sinful and selfish desires. There would be no room left for us to look outward or be compelled, Lord, by your vision for the world. But God, I ask that you would help us. Help us in this season. Lord, I lift up every single person to you within the sound of my voice that this time of year tends to be difficult. Whether because of family tensions, because of painful memories, whatever it is, if this is a hard time of year, God, I ask that you would anoint those people by your Holy Spirit not to be taken down and, and, and be neutralized by the enemy, but Lord, I ask that you would help them to not just focus on the sources of their pain, but to see bigger than that, have a bigger vision, see the beauty of this time of year, for, for this time of year not to be linked for them to only to painful memories, but may it also be linked to the remembrance of your coming and to the future hope of your coming again. I just ask you by your Holy Spirit to minister to those that struggle when the holidays come around. God, may you help them to take their eyes off them and, and their hurt and onto the, the needs of others because it will be more blessed for them to give than to receive. I just ask for your help in that, Lord. I ask God that um, by your Holy Spirit that we would have hope for the future. As we look at this world, as we look at it seeming to unravel, as we look at pain, God, I, I remember what you spoke to us through your word last week that the only reason these things, these grotesque injustices, the only reason that they bother us is because we're made in your image and because we still have this sense and this yearning for our heavenly home. Why is it that imperfection bothers us? Why is it that injustice runs across the grain of our souls? It is only because we were not made for this brokenness. We were made to be in perfect relationship with you. And so, God, may the darkness and the brokenness, as it increases, may, Lord God, our hunger and thirst increase for our final reconciliation with you. But, Lord, in the meantime, we commit to you that we will not just shrink back, but that we will work towards justice in your name, that we will work towards unity in your name, that, God, as much as it has to do with us, we will be mindful of the way we conduct ourselves. Lord, help us to reflect your love and your unity and your humility to every single person that we come in contact with. And God, may your unity reign as much as is possible in this country. May Christians rise up and speak humble words. And Lord, may there be justice. I know if we don't get it now, we'll get it eventually. And that's the way we rest. We trust you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.